The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Ajahn V used to uh, lead that meditation, and uh, when I was in the monastery, we sat in rows for lunch, and he said that sometimes he would just used to go from the novices all the way to the teachers, just saying their name and wishing metta. Um, and sometimes he would do it with all of his teachers. And what I do now is sometimes I'm walking on the street and I just do it with people. And um, because I take the same route to the train in San Francisco to go to Oakland, sometimes I see the same people and I give them nicknames. So there's like, guy with a bun, may you be well. And, uh, <laughs> and once in a while I see super fabulous uh, over-accessorized woman. And when <laughs> I don't know how she does it. She wears too much stuff, and she looks amazing. One time she was wearing like a Hello Kitty thing on her hair, and I'm like, how do you do that exactly? So whenever I bump into her, it's a big treat. Um, but airport lines are a stressful thing for me. I, I, it's like I have you know luggage, taking the stuff out, and then I'm like, okay, May you be well, person in front of me. May you be well. You know, waiting in line. Um, the uber wealthy never have to wait in line for anything, so they miss out on sending meta to people in line. But yeah, you know, waiting at... Don't do it at Target. They're very quick, so there's usually not a line. But <laughs> supermarkets or something. Um, it's a time, you know, when, again, meditation can be so... Um, Honorous sometimes. It's like, I have to exercise, I have to eat well, and now I have to meditate, and I have to read, and I have to take care of my children if you have children. And so um, this meditation is, is good for that. Where you can be like, I'm going to go through my family now. My abuelita, my grandma used to call it praying. Just prayed for her loved ones. And uh, it allows your nervous system to calm down. We just take time to do that. And if you didn't like it, fine too. Um, there's always the breath. Um, just realized recently that I'm having an anniversary of sorts. And today is kind of an interesting uh, day. Uh, my partner is here, and he's never heard me talk. And my friend Marcus is here, who I've known for 25 years. And I have some other friends here. And... Uh, when I did my master's degree, I had a mentor and professor, and she's here. So it's, it's uh, I, I, you know, I've, come, I, I've lived in seven countries, but Minnesota is a place where I've lived the longest. And for a lot of time, I felt so uprooted. And so it's, it's kind of nice to be in the room with people from, from my life. Uh, although I did wake up, I'm like, I better say something profound. There's going to be all these people. <laughs> like, I should be impressive or something. But I don't. I, I, I say that living in California, there's many people that want to be fancy teachers. I was talking to someone about this. and um, I see it more, like, you know, when I talk about the Dhamma, is sharing um, how it has helped my life, and, and that's it. So I was thinking as the theme, maybe I want to talk about wisdom. And the Pali word is panya. And... Um, Sometimes I used to think, what is the difference between being a good person, just living a good life, and being enlightened? And so, is being enlightened so that you're not reborn? 
Are we going to take uh, a stand saying, after you die, then this happens? And in California and in Western Buddhist circles, sometimes they'll say, now we're talking about Buddhism and, and, and making the Dhamma relevant. But who gets to choose what's irrelevant? Who's making that call? Is it devotion that's irrelevant? Because I grew up in Catholic El Salvador and our Catholicism was liberation theology. But when the Civil War got really bad, um, went to Guatemala and I saw a kind of devotion I had never seen. Sometimes these Mayan people would go and they mix things and they would go to these saints and they would touch a candle to the cloth of the saint and they would light the candle and they would have these processions and there was this devotion. And in Thailand, um, these old ladies, they looked like they were 200 years old, but they were like, so much energy and they would bow and they would bring all these flowers and they would, when we had did the all night sits, they would kind of like meditate sit there for four hours and then the bell would ring. The monks would be all like, you know, falling asleep. And then they would start talking to each other. You know, they, it, looked like it, was, it looked like gossiping. I don't know. <laughs> Couldn't understand. But there was this devotion. And my grandmother had devotion to some of the saints, Martin of Porus. And sometimes in over-educated circles, Buddhism has a lot of people with college degrees. Um, and as we have college degrees, we can get very brainy. And sometimes I've seen a dismissal of traditional ways of relating to the Dhamma. And Panya is one of the sections of the Noble Eightfold Path. And they're all intermingle. So when I learned about Buddhism, that first discourse of the Buddha, and if you haven't read it, Google it, you know, I find it very interesting. Uh, it talks about first having right view. You know, there's some doctrinal things that you can think about. Like there's no soul the way the Hindus see it. And we can get caught up in like, what does that mean? There's no self. And yet at the same time, in the scriptures, it says, learn to be generous and learn to have a life of integrity. And I'm still learning how to do that. And um, when it talks about wisdom, I tend not to say, the Buddha said, because I haven't seen any YouTube videos of the Buddha, and, <laughs> and, and I wasn't there. And so I can tell you, the Anguttara Nikaya says this. And I read recently in the Anguttara Nikaya, one of the, the scriptures, it presented the Noble Eightfold Path in a sequence. And I haven't seen this. And so first you get right view. Once you get right view, you move on to right intention. Once you have right intention, then you move to sila, right speech and right livelihood. And I'm like, that is very peculiar. Have you seen this? Like this sequence, right? It's really, it's kind of a weird presentation of the Noble Eightfold Path. But it made me think, oh, that's, that's interesting. But this Noble Eightfold Path also can say, if you don't have sila, if you don't have integrity, morality, uh, whatever word you want to use, there's no way you can meditate. If you're raping and murdering and doing all this stuff and then you sit down and you try to meditate, it's not going to work. And also, if you meditate and you start to investigate your mind, 
that will move you towards having wisdom. Because as you sit down and you start seeing how crazy your mind is, you're like, oh yeah, that's humbling. You know, How many of you have been to a meditation retreat, right? And the third day, you're like, ah, what's going on? What am I doing? What am I thinking? My knees hurt, whatever it is. So I think about my life and, and uh, the people that I think are wise. And I realized that it was 20 years ago that I became a monk when I took the robes. And um, it was a powerful event. And you know, I was really curious whether I could do that for the rest of my life. And you say, uh, out of compassion for me, grant me the going forth. And you live without money, you know, one meal a day, that kind of stuff. But in the scriptures, it also says, if being a monk was what it was about, when a baby's born, wrap him in the yellow robes, and that's it. The baby's done. Enlightened. Because although I wasn't conscious, there was a part of me that thought. You know, I was 26. I was 24 when I became a novice. Um, it's like getting a master's degree. You do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, and then you get your enlightenment diploma. Unfortunately, it <laughs> doesn't work like that. Some things work like that. You know, if you stop gossiping and telling lies, your relationships are going to be better. That makes sense. But other things, um, the mystery of your karma. Karma is a pre-Buddhist word, but in Buddhism, um, it's a little bit more nuanced. And the Buddha said, if you try to figure out karma, you're going to go crazy. Why was I born in the family that I was born? Why did I do this? Why did this happen? Why am I like this? And so what is wisdom when you're dealing with your life, with your friends? You know, why do I get depressed? Why do I get so annoyed? There's all these things about dukkha. And so in repeated over and over and over, the Buddha's quoted as saying, I teach two things. Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. And what is Dukkha? That which is difficult to withstand. What is difficult to withstand? Right? Pain, grief, lamentation. So when I used to look at that list, lamentation, grief, pain, and despair, when you're in the middle of despair, you know, is, is Buddhism that will give you the, the Tylenol for suffering? Like, oh, I'm going to practice Buddhism and my despair is going to go away. And Ajahn Sumedho, one of the, the teachings that I take from him, he constantly was talking about patience and patient endurance. That so much of his teacher's teaching was being bored in Thailand, three-hour Dhamma talks that were about how to clean the toilet and how to do all of this. Now, Ajahn Chah is one of the most famous teachers in Thailand. You know, the king and the queen went to the funeral and, and he would talk about how to clean the toilet for half an hour. And the teaching was about what is the suffering? Is it sitting there or is it something else? There's nothing that you can do that will prevent you from grief. You can prepare about, you know, getting an old body that is disintegrating. You know, Birth, old age, sickness, and death. 
That was one of the chants we used to do. I have not gone beyond aging. I have not gone beyond sickness. So you can be the Queen of England. You can have three PhDs. You will get sick. And the end of suffering, the third noble truth, is not a promise of never getting sick. Right? The second noble truth is not being attached to wanting things to be different. Desire is something we have. I desire water because I'm thirsty. It's being attached to the desire. And what is the difference? Is adding suffering to your suffering. Um, as I live my daily life, you know, I mean, I still see things that, that I'm impatient about with myself, and and uh, you know, and I teach ninth graders. <laughs> <laughs> Urban, ninety-five percent in poverty. You know, first generation going to college. Many immigrants, many English. You know, that a lot of the kids that nobody wants to teach. And uh, they get on my nerves sometimes. <laughs> they can push my buttons like nobody can. But I think they know I love them, and I think I, they know that I respect them. And I can be really tough on them, warm demander. You know, I've been hearing about the problems the Twin Cities has been having in public schools. And many times it's not giving, you know, uh, a really disciplined structure and being tough with them. And I'm going to be tough with you because I love you and you can't act like a fool. And of course it's complicated, right, the support systems of school, but in that moment of like, you're really annoying me, what am I doing, you know? And, and just, as I practice, many times I catch myself, okay, breathe, 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 whatever. Move on. And the definition of a wise person is somebody who... Um, Knows about the Four Noble Truths. That's what, how it's defined sometimes. But also somebody who um, strives to be in the present. And Ajahn Sumedho used to say it so many times. We had these breakfast meetings where we were having our porridge, called a gruel in England. So we used to call it the grueling meetings. Now this is <laughs> My God, he's talking about mindfulness again. It's like... But, you know, patient endurance, and he always used to say mindfulness is, is the path to the deathless. I was like, what does that mean? And it's only very recently that I've been getting some insights about that. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Um, and usually when I'm a common ground, I also say the Catholics would say, uh, it's the grace of God. You're experiencing the Holy Spirit. Or you are sensing the presence of God. There's this thing when I was a teenager, I remember saying, all religions lead to the same path. So it's like a mountain, and some people take a bike, and some people take a helicopter, and some people walk. And I was like, nah, -uh. religions are really different. But once in a while, in every religion or every spiritual tradition, uh, there are the mystics, and those are the people that know how to be in the present moment. And they understand love. And love is an English word that's really so inaccurate, and so it's used in so many terms. 
right? I always say you can love your ice cream, you can love your lover, you can love your grandma, but when they say God is love, it's the awareness when, when life is just experienced and compassion and wisdom arise. And that's, that's the big mindfulness with a big M. Sometimes I get the feeling that in some circles, mindfulness is presented as if you're not over, um, mul- multitasking, you're being mindful. And it, there's some truth to that. Right? Like, I'm just going to eat, not read the paper, listen to this, check, you know. But Ajahn V, one of my teachers, says, you don't have to be slow to be mindful. He always used to say, think of athletes. An athlete can be really mindful and really powerful and really fast. And so you can do a very slow walking meditation, but you can also walk fast and be mindful. And so don't, don't put mindfulness into, into a box. And then you, you sort of begin to understand what it means to be present. Am I making sense? <laughs> okay. I want to invite you to think about um, what is the wisdom that you have what are the aphorisms that you live? You know, like my, gra- my mom says, without health, you have nothing. You have one body, right? And so you can be at your favorite vacation spot. And if you're sick, <laughs> right? Ajahn Chah used to say, if your purse smells like dog shit, the whole world smells like dog shit. <laughs> you know? If you hate every of your coworkers, I'm sorry, honey, but what they have in common is you. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> right. What you know? Sometimes people say like little what I call the bumper sticker wisdom. Remember when someone said to me, five minutes early is on time, on time is late, five minutes late is rude." I said, "Okay." You know, that there's things that stick. So I want to invite you to talk to somebody who's behind you, maybe somebody you haven't met. Say your name. We're going to take five minutes. Some people don't want to talk, so you could just kind of, you know, close your eyes. And that's okay if you don't want to share. But sometimes the people that's up here can talk and talk, and then someone next to you might say the thing that you remember. So at EBMC, the East Bay Meditation Center, which is one of the most racially, ethnically, whatever diverse places I've ever seen seen in my life, they do this. They just have people talk to each other. So I want to talk to somebody, uh, preferably somebody you haven't met, but even if you have met them. um, Take about two minutes and share something that you've learned about how to be human. What is the wisdom that you have? You know, my grandma used to say this. Or, you know, after I've learned how to meditate, I've learned to understand this. And then switch. I'm going to give you five minutes and I'll ring the the bell at 11.25. So introduce yourself. Can I share something about what makes life a little bit easier for you? So let's do that now. Turn around. Say hi. Thank you for... Spending some time with each other. Am I, am I on still? You can hear me? Yeah. Okay. 
So yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to uh, be here that after, you know, when I left the monastery and all that, it's 20 years, 30 years ago, and, I, and I'm going to change the little bio I have, I, some things have changed. I, um, yeah, when I was 16, I had a very kind of opening experience and all that, and, and uh, I always think, isn't it amazing that we're still here? And I've been doing some recollections on ancestors. There's a lot of Mexican people in Oakland that do um, ancestor work. And, uh, and all of that wisdom, you know, we carry our DNA, our species. I want to open it up right now, see if you have uh, any questions. Or it would be lovely to hear maybe something you heard. You know, maybe something that you heard or you heard yourself was, was interesting. So... Um, let's open up this time to see if you want to address me or just share with the group, with each other. Maybe something that stood up and say, oh, that was lovely to hear. So. Uh, the, gentleman on, oops, the gentleman on my right uh, <laughs> said that what has been a catastrophe, catastrophe in your life could turn out to be a blessing and I am going to think about that for a good long time. There's a lot of layered truth in that. Hi. You uh, made a comment that I'm really intrigued about. You said mindfulness leads to deathless. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could share yeah. a little bit more about yeah. that. Ajahn Sumedh is the founder of Amaravati. It's a big monastery in England. And um, Mara is the Pali word for death, and every time you put the letter A, it becomes Amara, so it's a deathless. It's a quote that he used to say many times. Sometimes uh, he chants it in the beginning of every talk. <coughs> Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. And what he's talking about the deathless is um, intuitive awareness is what he called it. And it's a time where no self is not a doctrinal stand. It's an experience. And it's not about being one with everything. You understand interconnectedness. But it's a witnessing. It's what sometimes Muslims call surrender. The Sufi. So mindfulness being the path to the deathless is that he used to say, the past is a memory. The future is the unknown. Now is the knowing. And that now is what he called the deathless. At that moment, there's no death. But it's brainy. You can't understand it. You know, it took me years and years and years to... It's kind of like reading a poem. You kind of get a feel of, oh... Or, you know, sometimes in art or when you're doing... There's a time when when there is a spaciousness. And that spaciousness, when people in different traditions have experienced it, they start calling it things. Because we cannot say with our words what that experience is. Uh, and those, those moments are, um, are profound and simple, which is, you know, so many traditions talk about. It's, uh, you know, we go on with our lives, we do our silly things, we worry about stuff. And once in a while, things quiet down. And once in a while, you, you have an awareness, um, 
a presence. And, uh, and that, is, that is the mindfulness. And all of the teachings and all of that are pointing to that. Because even the eighth jhana, the highest meditation absorption that you can have, the, you know, this, this space of neither perception or non-perception, all the things that yogis have experienced, all of this stuff, um, the story is that the, the Buddha said, no, that's, that's not it. Yeah, still not it. And so um, I don't know if I'm helping, yeah. but, but, it is, but it is talking about um, mindfulness, you know, allowing things to be the way they are. That is what, that what it's, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. First, thank you, Niels, for the teaching. Yeah. yeah. Last time you were here in the winter, we had a conversation about um, uh, about uh, loving kindness versus compassion, mm. and it was a very powerful conversation. It, uh, it left a huge <laughs> impact on me. Um, I'm, I'm actually speaking at a workshop later today on this very topic, mm-hmm. uh, based on the conversation that we had. Mm-hmm. It focused on how to how the two, you know, the outward metta, 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 loving kindness versus compassion that makes, has you go deep, join with the suffering of another, and then uh, the yeah. buoyancy, yeah? I'm wondering if you can say a few more words about that, and especially engaging, like, social justice issues, mm-hmm. but in, or interpersonally, but especially around social justice issues. Sure. When you first started saying, the last time you were here, when I was talking, I was like, last time I was here, I was talking about sex. I was like, what are you going <laughs> to... did that too. You did that. What are you going <laughs> to I did a whole workshop about sex and the Dhamma and sexuality, right? There's so much stuff around it. Um, yesterday, I had lunch with five women that had been working on social justice. It was a painful conversation, but it was also, it's the way it is, right? Like, uh, you know, if you're working on social justice, it can be so exhausting. And, and then sometimes you find lateral oppression where people that are supposed to be your allies. Um, you know, like in Minnesota, where there's so much liberal, educated people who say they're allies, but they don't know what that means. And so the microaggressions and all that stuff that happens. Um, karuna versus metta. So karuna, compassion. Uh, a lot of the Buddhist traditions say there is no difference between wisdom and compassion. If you finally understand what compassion is, that's it. You're wise. It doesn't matter what you do in this lifetime. The social justice issues will continue. The world cannot be fixed. What do you do with that reality than with the reality of still answering to sexism, still answering to racism, still answering to inequity? It's a a thing that social justice people have to deal with. Yep, I'm... I'm putting seeds for trees that are going to grow later and I'm never going to taste that fruit. Doing no harm is something that is always uh, good to check. Compassion is understanding the suffering of others. That's part of it. And if you understand your own suffering, that helps. 
when I do compassion meditation, I have never led. Um, I think I don't know how to do that yet. I plus I don't teach that often. Um, but sometimes I will take a child. You know, we have seven billion beings of our species, and right now a child is being abused, and right now a mother is grieving. You know, her soldier son. It's, just, it's happening right now. And sometimes I will take that child in my heart and I don't know that child's name. And I know that that child is being hurt. And there's times that I, you know, tears will fall, right? But out of that is what, it's like, yeah, I don't want to live a superficial life. Out of, out of that pain that someone else feels, it's like, yeah, I want to live with integrity. I, compassion gives me energy as opposed to something that is depressing. Uh, Paul Gorski, a man I have worked with, he was a professor at Hamlin. He has moved on. He's doing a research project on social justice workers and burnout. And he's also finding out that social justice people can not be very kind to each other. You know, or the peace workers, that they protest for peace and, and they're so angry. <laughs> um, because... Indignation, right? Righteous indignation can feel so good. And we can say, oh, Donald, Donald, Donald Trump is this, Donald Trump is that. Donald Trump is not that unusual. He's just saying what's true for a lot of people. And so sometimes you can blame. And You're asking a complex question, right? You could write a dissertation on it. Um, Loving kindness is also not mushy, right? It's not like, uh, you know, to love your enemies is a really high standard. And, and things like forgiveness and gratitude, those things are experienced. They cannot be forced. And how can you forgive an entire system? Right. Like this nation was created by white men for white men. And so white supremacy is just the air we breathe. Now, most white people have not been trained on white privilege. You know, most Americans don't know geography. You know, you, why would you want to know about geography? And so when you are breathing white privilege, and then you want to do social justice work, and as a person of color in Minnesota, right? I mean, I just getting out of the airport, I was like, oh my God, I'm in white world again. Because where I live, it, you know, it's so diverse and um, it's such a stressful thing. You know, it's like plaque. You don't know it's getting there and, you know, you lose your tooth not knowing it. Um, I'm sorry, I'm taking a, a lot of time, but it's, it's um, compassion is a spiritual practice and, and uh, when it's done right, it gives you strength. And so, the, again, the good Christian mystics say, when you carry the cross, you know, all of that symbology, never made, I've, I've never really un- understood Jesus, like Jesus, is never, the Virgin Mary I love, because she's fabulous, but, <laughs> but you know, Christians talk about, yeah, you carry that cross, and, and uh, you can't give what you don't have, so again, compassion for yourself, and um, what your idea of a social justice world is might be different from your idea. Right? Or the perfect world for you might be different from the perfect world for you. 
So that's when people may think that abortion rights is a social justice this way or a social justice this way. And you can get into politics and disagreements and the definition of, of that. And so if you have a social justice work uh, rooted in compassion, good for you, but it's, uh, it's hard work. Um, so it's 11.39, I think some kids will come. Um, I have to tell you that um, this work gives you joy when you actually do it. And you know what do Nelson Mandela and Mahatma Gandhi have in common? They were both lawyers. So the first thing you think about, right? So they had the tools. But they were also very strong. And, you know, the Dalai Lama has this sense of humor that, you know, the times that I've heard him speak, we have of Titnet Han seeing the suffering of his people and the, the loveliness of his character. You know, or Mahagosananda, who is called the, the Gandhi of Cambodia. He used to visit Chithurst in England. Marcus, my friend who's here, he was at Chithurst with me. It's this lovely English cottage. And he used to come and Bante, give us some wisdom. And he's like, I wake up and I try to be better every day. <laughs> this is someone that has seen the suffering of Cambodia. And so the joy that you have is a gift for the world that is immeasurable. And if you're losing your joy when you're doing all of that work, check, check what's going on. Because understanding the, um, the suffering of others, it's a uh, high practice. Uh, and to forgive oppression, to understand where that comes from. You know, again, Titnahan's poem, call me by my true names or whatever it is. You know that famous poem? You know what I'm talking about? Right? Who says that I'm not an oppressor? I'm, I'm being honest. Like I, really, I really don't just give myself the title of I'm not oppressing because I don't know if I'm causing harm to my students sometimes. I cannot have that guarantee. <laughs> So it's a state of humility. And I've been curious about humility because arrogance has been one of my character flaws. You know, arrogance is an insecurity that's difficult to grab. So good. Uh, I wish you well and work with social justice. Thank you for doing it. And feed yourself and um, have a sense of humor and think about what our species has done to each other in history, right? Every race. And we just happen to live you know, in a country where oppression has been built in, in the structure. And so it's very, very difficult to work with it, right? Because everything points to some people getting more privileged than others. So, um. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.